You are about to listen to At the Foot of Harsinai, a four-part series that details and illuminates the experience of the Jewish people receiving the Torah, as explained by the Gemara, Medrash, Rishonim, and Acharonim. Resuming the Pasuk, the Pesukim, the next Pasuk says, V'yomar Hashem el Moshe, Hashem said to Moshe, Hine anochi ba'ilecha ba'av hanan. I am going to appear to you in the thickness of the cloud, so that the nation can hear when I speak with you, and also in you they will believe forever. And Moshe said over the words of the nation to Hashem. Now, this Pesach, as probably any Pesach in Chumash, is highly abbreviated and certainly very difficult to understand, meaning... Uh, Hashem says to Moshe <coughs> that I'm going to appear to you. Uh, and then Moshe says over the Divrei Am, the words of the people to Hashem. So Rashi explains actually what's happening here is there, there are two parts to what's really transpiring in this Pasuk. On day one, we actually landed in Midbar Sinai. That's when the Jewish nation encamped in Midbar Sinai. The next morning, <coughs> Moshe Bino went up. Every Hashkam, every Aliyah, every time Moshe Bino went up, it was early in the morning. So the next day was when Moshe Bino went up to Shemayim. And that's when Hashem said to him, go down and tell the Jewish nation this is what the covenant is going to be. So that day, which is day two, Moshe Benu came down. He told the Jewish people what Hashem wanted, and that's exactly what the Kalaisal said, Nasa, we will do. The next day, next morning, which is day three, Moshe Benu went up. So again, because he <clears throat> always went up, Ashkamas was day three, then he went up. When he went up, he told over to the Am, he told over to Hashem, exactly that which the people said. They said, Nasa. Hashem said, fine, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to speak to you in the Anan, in the cloud, and they're going to hear because that will strengthen their emuna. Now, if you carefully study the Psukim, at that point, Moshe says, the Divrei Am to Hashem, explains Rashi, that point is another day altogether, meaning Hashem said, I'm going to speak to you, Moshe, Moshe Benin went down to the Kali and said that to them, and the Kali said, uh-uh, we don't want that. Ritzoneinu liros es malkenu. Our desire is not for Hashem to speak to Moshe, our desire is that we want to hear directly from Hashem. Now, you have to understand really what's happening here is a phenomenal concept. The basic offer that Hashem made to the Kali was that they were all going to become Nevi'im. As Hashem said to Moshe, I'm going to speak to you, and the rest of the Jewish nation will experience it. Now, they were going to experience it as a sort of, almost sort of watching from the side, because there's only one human being who ever spoke to Hashem upon him, upon him with total, complete consciousness, and that was Moshe Rabbeinu. And basically, Hashem was saying, I'm going to speak to you in that manner, and the Jewish nation will witness, they will watch. Now, the reason why they were supposed to be Nevi'im, and supposed to witness this, and actually experience Hashem, was because Hashem was for one time in history giving forth the revelation. Now, there is in the world something called Kishuf. When Hashem created the world, the physical world, the Chavazavah explains to us that for every physical component, Hashem created a spiritual counterpart. There are many references to this concept in Chazal, that every physical part of the world only exists because of the spiritual counterpart to it. Now, the Sefer Chinuch explains Kishuf, which we would call black magic or something like that, is actually where a person is knowledgeable enough in the upper world 
that he's able to sort of mess with the system, meaning every physical component in this world only exists because there's a spiritual counterpart to it. When a person is very learned in the spiritual counterpart and he learns how to sort of manipulate the system, he can make changes in the physical world. Because again, rocks, water, everything only exists because of the spiritual world behind it. If one is very knowledgeable, he can fiddle around with the, uh, with the upper world, with the spiritual world, and that changes the physical world. Now, this sort of concept was very common back in the day. In other words, we now have very little exposure to real kish of any magic that we do is optical illusions. It's really, it's just entertainment. But <clears throat> Moshe Mino appeared to Paro, and he took <clears throat> the stick and threw it on the ground, and it turned into a nachash. That was a major moface. This was a, a miracle. This was astonishing. But Paro wasn't moved at all. Paro called for his uh, academy kids and uh, the children said, come forth. And uh, they all did the same. They all took their staff, threw it on the ground, and it became, uh, it became snakes. Now, according to almost all of the Rishonim, it was not an optical illusion. It was not achizas enayim. Rather, in Mitzrayim, they were very maluma. They were very learned in Kishof and these various types of controlling the spiritual world and therefore controlling the physical world. And this was something that they steigd in. So, basically, what was happening at, here at Har Sinai was, Hashem was eliminating any doubt whatsoever. This was to be the complete, total, utter revelation, where Hashem, Kaviachal, the creator of heavens and earth, speaks to an entire nation, but in a manner that it's so obvious, so clear, that there can be no doubt. You can't imagine it to be Kishuv, you can't imagine it to be any sort of black magic or anything of the like, because every person was to reach a state of Nevoah. Now, nevuah means a complete, utter understanding, an intellectual, what the Achronim called seeing things in your mind's eye, meaning I'm not totally conscious, but <clears throat> I understand it, I relate to it. Then when I sort of regain my total consciousness, then I recognize what it is that I saw, I interpret it through my physical body, and then I, I have that understanding. When Hashem was offering, the client saw it was the same level as Yecheskel, the same level as Yirmiya, a total complete knowledge of Hashem, bin Nevias, to watch Hashem speak to Moshe and to witness it. And the Klai were not satisfied with that. They said, that's great, we want more. The Medrash says, we want to hear Hashem's voice. We want to experience Hashem. And they asked for Nevuah, literally on the level of Moshe Benu, literally on that level of Ponim upon him with total complete consciousness. So Rashi explains that that's what happened on the fourth day, meaning on the third day, Hashem said to Moshe, what I'm going to do is I'm going to appear to you in the cloud, and the Bnei Yisrael are going to hear. Moshe Benu came down and told the clients all that. Bnei Yisrael said, uh-uh, we don't want that. We want to see Hashem directly. The next day, day four, Moshe Benu goes up, Moshe Benu goes up and tells the words of the nation to Hashem. At which point, the next Pasuk tells us, Hashem says to Moshe, go to nation, let them become holy today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothing. Says Rashi, what does this mean? If I'm going to have to speak to them directly, then this is what you have to do. Meaning Hashem was acquiescing, Hashem was agreeing. The Bnei Yisrael said they don't want to receive secondary prophecy, they want to see, receive it directly. Hashem said, fine, if that's what they want, this is what they have to do. Moshe, go to the nation, prepare them today and tomorrow, and let them clean their clothing. Now, 
The Rishonim explained to us that Chibsu Simlosam doesn't just mean wash your clothing. Rabbeinu Machai explains what this means is, this means going to the mikveh preparing, and the, the Sforno explains that there are two elements to being prepared for Nevoah. Obviously, on a spiritual level, you're mentally, emotionally, you have to be prepared. And what Hashem was telling him was that this type of nevuah require, requires his bodhus, requires separating from the physical, separating from desires and from distractions. That's in a, so to speak, intellectual, emotional realm. But in addition to the nefesh or the ruach of Adam, you also have to prepare the body. Meaning to say, it has to be clean, you go to the mikvah, tahar, kadosh, it has to be, reach a level as much as it's able to, because again, this is a different different level of nevuah. And in fact, the Klaishol did that, they went to the mikvah, they prepared, they was born in, and they were getting themselves ready, the yom hashlishi for the third day. And the next Pasuk tells us, uh, they should be prepared for the third day. Because on the third day, Hashem will come down to the eyes of the entire nation, Al Harsinai, on Harsinai. So basically, it's day four that Moshe says the clients will want to see directly. At that point, Hashem says, fine. If they want to see directly, then they have to prepare themselves. So they should be ready for the third day. So four, day four is when Moshe comes down and tells the Bnei Israel that today and tomorrow, meaning to say day four and day five prepare, because day six is when you are going to receive the Torah. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's a machlokas in the Gemara whether the Torah was given bevav sivan or behes or bezayin sivan, meaning to say there is a machlokas where the Moshe Benu added a day of preparation, meaning because he was coming down on day four. But that was not a complete day, meaning he went up in the morning of day four and said to the Hashem, the Jewish people want more. So he, Hashem said, fine, let them prepare for three days. Now, when Moshe Benu came down, it was midday or some point in, after the beginning of day four, so they need three days. Did Hashem say, use the rest of day four, day five, and then day six, it'll appear, but then you won't have two complete days of preparation so, according to one man, Moshe Benu added an extra day to be a complete day five and day six. So then, day seven, Hashem actually appeared. In any case, the Klai Yisrael was supposed to prepare; they're supposed to be ready, and Hashem will come down to the eyes, to the vision of the entire nation. Now, apparently, this vision meant both the inner eye as well as the outer eye. The inner eye, meaning a yidia, a knowledge, a complete recognition. But it meant visually as well. And Rashi explains what does it mean. This teaches us that there were no blind people. All of them were healed. Now, as mentioned earlier, the Medrash tells us that most of the Jewish people who had left Mitzrayim, who are now in the Midbar, were balimumim, were damaged. Because keep in mind, again, the work in Mitzrayim was very, very difficult. They were oppressed and they were tortured. It was a type of engagement that was supposed to be um, highly, highly torturesome. And uh, much of the work wasn't just an issue of them working hard, but it was specifically to to damage them. And the results were that almost all of the Jewish nation were exactly that, were, were damaged, meaning to say there were people who were kateyad, who arms were cut off, legs were cut off, who were blind, who were deaf, and instantly... 
all of them were healed. Now, again, as I mentioned, the manager explains it's not proper for a a damaged generation to receive the Torah, and therefore, miraculously, they all saw, they were all able to speak, all f- were fully mobile, all of their injuries were healed. And they remained in that state until the Chet Egel. Once they sinned with the Chet Egel, immediately the Mumim came back. And really, just as an illustration of what it was like living in the Midbar, you have to appreciate one simple observation. Imagine you're a Jewish man, and at age 20, you, uh, you know, a brick fell on your hand, and, and since that time, your hand has been smashed, and it's basically, you have no strength in it, no ability to move, it's very, very difficult, very clumsy, you have a real problem. Or you're limp, you, you broke, your knee was smashed, or you're blind in one eye, and suddenly <clears throat> you get to Harsinai, and miraculously every injury is gone, you're perfectly mobile, your eyesight returns, you're, it, you're in complete health. And then after the Cheda Egel, that old injury came back, that limping that you did for 20 years, that you finally healed, or that <clears throat> blindness in one eye that you couldn't see for 10 years, and now you were able to see, it reverts back to the old stage. And what the Jewish nation experienced was something so palpable, every sin damages me. If I'm on a high madrega, Hashem protects me, Hashem guides me, and if not, I'm left to whatever. And it's hard to imagine the immediacy of the punishments and how clearly the Jewish nation saw the damage of every sin, and the opposite, how amazingly beneficial every mitzvah is. And on a certain level, their Bechiru was different than ours, meaning to say, we could live a life here, you know, do whatever you want, and it takes years and years until Hashem sort of arranges things for us to, to get it, to, to, to receive the message. With them, it was instant, it was immediate, and the result was that they were on a very, very high level. In any case, next passage says, Hashem continues what it is they have to do in the preparation. You should uh, put a put a ribbon, so to speak, around the Am, um, telling them, Hishamru lachem, warn them, Allah's Bahar, not to go up on the Har and go Bakateo, or to touch the edge of it. Kolanagea Bahar Mos Yumas, whoever touches the Har will die. Rashi explains you have to make a trum, make a uh, make some sort of sign that that sign should signal up until here the Klaisel can go, but they can't actually go beyond it. And in fact, the entire Jewish nation were only allowed to go to the edge of Harsinai. They were not even allowed to touch the the actual edge. They were only allowed to go there. Losigabo, don't touch the uh, the uh, the actual mountain. Losigaboyad, don't touch it with the hand. Kisako yisakel, anyone who does will be stoned, will be chayef skila. O yora yeyare, or they'll be crushed. In behema im ishlo yichia, whether it be an animal, whether it be a man, will not live. When the shofar is blasted at the end, when the shofar sounds at the very end of Kabbalah Satora, then they will be able to go up on the mountain. Now it's very clear that the Kalaisa were only allowed to go so far and no further. The rush is bothered by a little bit of a question, and that is, just a minute ago, Hashem said, tell the Bnei Israel that anyone who touches the heart will die. Now, in addition to, it says, Lo sigabo, don't do it. Well, listen, they're going to die. If, if, if you tell the Jewish nation, if they even touch the har, they even touch the mountain, they're going to die, you don't have to tell them, don't do it. That's sufficient a warning. The Rush answers that really the Torah is teaching us a fundamental principle here. It is true that every Avera damages me, and it's true that every mitzvah helps me and, and benefits me. 
But let's assume I say at some point, I get it, I understand. Treif food is metamtim lev, dead in my heart. I understand I won't be able to dive in the same way, I won't be able to feel Shabbos, and say, I get it, but I don't care. I'm willing to do it. And let's even say I really, really get it. I really understand the damage. I really understand <clears throat> what it does to me. But I say, I don't care. Well, that's very nice, but guess what? There's still a losa say in the Torah. You're not allowed to do, do it. You're forbidden to do it, even if you want to suffer the consequences, even if you recognize the consequences, you're not allowed to do it. Now here, <clears throat> it's a little bit of a chiddish because the Jewish nation were at a stage where they really recognize the damage, meaning to say, in our world, we don't really see the direct effects. We don't see that Lashon Hara damages me. We don't see that <clears throat> things that I do directly affect me. But the Jewish nation here was standing at the foot of Har Sinai. They were close to a level of Nevuah <clears throat> that was unprecedented historically, and they understood that when Hashem said they would die, it meant literally that they would die. And still, <clears throat> there's a point that the Isser <clears throat> would have prevented them even more than death, meaning to say even though they knew they might die, they might have opted for that chance, but still Hashem says it's forbidden, you're not allowed to, and apparently the Isser sometimes can go further than even the warning of the damage, and in fact, that's what Hashem was saying there. And Moshe came down from the mountain, Elaam to the people, by Kaddish and he made holy the people, by Chapsu Simlosam, and they cleaned their clothing. The Xav uh, Kabbalah explains what does it mean that Kaddish Moshe made holy the people. What he did was he was mishtaldal them bedvarim. He explained to them the grand opportunity. He explained to them how much they can be close to Hashem. He explained to me he was mekadesh the am. He made them holy by explaining to them everything that they could possibly do. Biyomer el am and Moshe said to the nation, Hey, you nechonim be prepared for three days. Al tigshu elaisha, don't go to a woman. It was forbidden for man and husband and wife to be together. They had to be tohar, they had to be kodosh, and they prepared for these three days. By ye by yom hashlishi, and it was on the third day, biyosaboker early in the morning, vikolos ubrakim, and there were loud thunders and lightning, vaanan kaved alahar, and a powerful pillar of smoke. An, a, a anan, a, uh, a cloud on the har of a kol shofar chazak ma'od, and a powerful shofar blast, vayachrod kol machane, and the entire nation that was in the machane were trembling. So here we have that actual moment. Hashem said to Moshe, prepare them, Moshe prepared them, everyone got ready, and now it's the third day of that preparation, it's either vav sivan, zayin sivan, the point is this is the day of Kabbalah Satora. And now the Torah is describing to us what the scene looked like. So, number one, we're told that it was Biyos Baboke, when the Jewish nation awoken, it were, the scene was already set. And Rashi says, With This teaches us that Hashem beat them to the punch, so to speak, that Hashem was there before them. By mortal people, it's not the way it's done. That the Rebbe, the teacher, should be waiting for the student, meaning Hashem came down on Har Sinai before the Jewish nation got there because Hashem wanted to give the Klaisal the honor, wanted to treat them with the respect, even though obviously that's the opposite of the world we live in because certainly the, the Talmud is there before the Rav, the Talmud waits for the Rav, not the opposite. But again, Mahmoud Hashem's tremendous anova and the cover that Hashem wanted to show the Bnei Israel, Hashem was there first. But the scene, as it's described, 
is a very, very powerful scene. The entire nation sees the kolos ubrokim, kolos are loud sounds, brokim are lightning. Now the psukim and dvarim and uh, dvarim perikei and perikdala describe even more that the entire mountain was covered with a powerful, powerful pillar of smoke. There was fire coming out of different places. There was lightning, and there were powerful, powerful noises coming out. In addition to which, there was a coal shofar chazak mod, a very, very powerful shofar. Now Rashi says, Roim as a kolos, that the Jewish nation was saw, Roim as a nishma. They heard that which you know, they saw that which you could normally see. See, the Pasuk is very clear that the Jewish nation saw the kolos, they saw the sounds. Now, sounds are things you hear, you don't see sounds, but apparently there was another manifestation to the kolos, to the loud noises, they were actually able to see them. And the entire nation in the machine were trembling. Why were they trembling? Because this was, in fact, an awe-inspiring sight. It was very, very frightening. And in fact, the entire nation were trembling. Rabbeinu Machai explains that these kolos weren't just noises. The Rabbeinu Machai explains that these kolos were the malachim shemakalsim lakarish baruchu b'chol boker boker. These noises were actually the sounds of the malachim who praise Hashem every day. Brokim, what were these lightnings? These lightnings weren't just lightning strikes. They were malachim. They were the type of malachim that also praise Hashem, but they look like like lightning strikes to us. And the Anan covered, why was there a heavy cloud on the mountain? Had the Jewish nation been able to see these malachim clearly, they would have been trembling with awe, trepidation, fear, and dread. Now, a number of times in Nach, we're told what happens to a human being when he sees a malach. We think of a malach, a nice little angel, you know, some white wings, he floats around, very nice. A malach is a powerful, powerful being. A malach can destroy worlds with his hevopiyam, with his, with his breath. A malach is awe-inspiring, kodesh, and beyond human description. If a human being were able to see a malach, he would faint instantly. He'd be filled with such dread and fear, with such trepidation, that he would not be able to withstand it. Rabbi Machai is explaining to us that the reason why Hashem had to cover the entire mountain with this anan, with this cloud, was that it shouldn't be clear, that the Jewish nation should not be able to see. Why? Because what were these flames, what were these lightning, these were malachim, powerful, powerful beings, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of groups, each group containing millions of malachim, and they were beyond human comprehension. The glory of Hashem Shekhinah was coming down onto the har, and had the Jewish nation been able to see that, they would not have been able to withstand it. Therefore, Hashem sort of cloaked it in the Anan so they could only see a little bit. And Moshe brought out the nation to greet Hashem from the Machaneh. And they stood on the bottom of the mountain. Now, why did Moshe have to take out the people? So Rashi explains to us that the Jewish nation were filled with fear with such trepidation that the Rishonim explained to us that they did not want to go out to, to meet Hashem. Meaning, the scene at Harsinai was so awe-inspiring, was so frightening, 
that the Jewish nation needed to be led. Moshe Rabbeinu had to sort of speak, take them out, even though the Jewish nation desired deeply to <clears throat> meet Hashem, so much so that when Hashem said, I'm going to speak to Moshe, no, 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 we want to see Hashem directly. When it came time to the actual, what was happening, it was such a frightening scene <clears throat> that they said, we're not going. And Moshe Rabbeinu had to literally take them out. They stood at the <clears throat> underpart of the mountain. Now, this is a famous Chazal because the Pasuk says that they stood which seems to say that they stood underneath the mountain. Now, they didn't stand underneath the mountain. They stood at the base of the mountain. They stood at the foot of Har Sinai. The Gemara says, no, no, no. What that means is they stood underneath the mountain. That Hashem picked up the mountain like a barrel. Hashem held it over their heads and they said, if you accept the Torah, fine. If not, this is where you, you will be buried. Meaning, if you accept the Torah, fine and well. If not, the world comes to an end right now. And Hashem would have come, dropped the mountain on their head and it would have ended their life, ended the world. And it was, in that sense, an onus. It was against their will. And in the next part, we'll discuss a little bit why it is that way. But this was the most frightening, awe-inspiring moment ever in the history of mankind. Every Jew there got to see that which can't be seen, and the kolos and brachim, the powerful, powerful lightning strikes and the loud noises and the flame. And again, as Rabbi Mechai explains, that these were just legions of malachim that the Jewish nation were now on the level to experience. And they were experience a frightening scene. Moshe leads them out, and the entire har is picked up, the entire mountain is raised above their heads, and at that moment, the Pesach says, Var Sinai Ashen Kulo, the entire mountain of Sinai is aflame, is Ashen is smoke, because Hashem came down onto the mountain with fire, and the smoke went up like the smoke of a kivshan, of a uh, of a kiln, and the entire mountain shook very much. Now, again, you have to recognize that when the Torah uses mashalim, again, it's very, very important to realize that a mashal serves a particular purpose and has to be understood. Meaning, the Rishonim explains that really, in a sense, this could sound almost like a, like an insult um, to Hashem, meaning to say, that the, uh, the, the mountain was aflame like the, with the smoke, like the smoke of a kiln, the smoke of an, of an oven. Now, that's like saying, you know, that, that the, the, again, I can't even explain the question, so to speak, because it's so insulting to say that Hashem came down on the mountain and the mountain had smoke like, like almost like an oven. Explain, the Rishon explained that basically what's happening here is that this is an example of what we call a shovra ozen, to help a human being understand in language that we can understand, meaning we are very corporeal, we live in a physical world, and our entire frame of reference is strictly within the realm of our experiences. So I can relate to things in the world that I live in, I can relate to things through my senses, but outside of that I really can't feel, I can't touch it, I can't experience it. So for instance, when the Torah wants to describe the might of the sun, the Torah describes the might of the sun, Kigibor Yotze Lorz Orach. The sun comes out like a gibor, like a mighty warrior to, to go about its its duties. 
Now, if you think about it, a mighty warrior is a man. A man weighs 200 pounds. He might be six feet tall. We're saying the sun comes out like a mighty warrior. That's an insult to the sun. The sun is 865,000 miles in diameter. The sun can burn any human being in a flash at 17 million degrees core temperature. So how do you say the, the sun is so mighty, it's mighty like a, a mighty man? The answer is it's a muscle. It's trying to just give us a frame of reference in some language, so to speak, that we speak, meaning any description that we have of Harsinai and, and obviously any description of Hashem or the manifestation of Hashem is going to be diminutive by definition. It's going to play down, but again, the Torah does it to give us at least some some sense of things, some some understanding of it so that we can relate to it on whatever level we can. But in fact, that's what's happening here. So the Pasuk then tells us that the shofar blasts began, and the shofar blast, the Pasuk says, began in a voice that wasn't as strong, but it became much stronger as it went through. And Rashi explains to us that the shofar blast was holik v'chazak ma'od, it went on and became very much stronger, unlike a minog meaning to say normally when a person blows a shofar, he begins in a, in a best a loud voice, a loud call, a loud blast, and it gets weaker and weaker, but the shofar blast began and got stronger and stronger. Rashi explains that the shofar blast began at the loudest possible decibel level that was still audible to man, meaning the shofar blast began at the highest range of human sound that a human being can hear, and then it began getting louder and louder, and it didn't stop. And as this continued through this sort of tremendous, tremendous sound, through this tremendous noise, Moshe Benu was going to speak. Now, you have to recognize that it's a little bit difficult because, you see, the Pasuk says, We call a shofar holy chazak ma'od. Moshe speaks and Hashem answers in Bakol. Rabbeinu Rechai explains to us that really there's a miracle going on here that's not so simple to understand, meaning you have this mountain that's trembling and you have these lightnings and thunders and tremendous amount of noise. Then this shofar blast begins. Now it begins so loud, so loud that it begins at the, loud, the loudest possible sound the human being can still hear and not go deaf, and then it gets louder and louder and louder. Okay, then Moshe Benu begins speaking. Now, obviously, Moshe Benu is going to have a great difficulty being heard. Keep in mind, there's 600,000 people there. The machane is, <clears throat> it's 12 mil. It's, it's a huge, huge throng of people. If Moshe Benu blasted his voice at the loudest he possibly could, maybe he could be heard <clears throat> in a few front rows, but we're talking about a huge throng of people. So it explains to Rabbeinu Bechai that this is part of the nace, that despite the competition from the noise of the shofar, and despite the fact that really, of course, Moshe Benu's voice shouldn't have been able to be heard, Hashem arranged it such that it was heard from Moshe. Meaning what? See, the first two dibros were spoken by Hashem directly. The Chayso said, we want to hear Hashem directly. So Hashem said, And then that was it. The rest was said by Moshe. Why? Because the Jewish nation died, 
when they experienced Hashem's complete revelation, it, w- it was just too much it was system overload, and the Jews died. That to be Tchias Mesim. So the first time it happened, second they were, then the Klaisel said, "Enough, we can't handle it anymore." So at that point, Moshe Rabbeinu began speaking. So the uh, Debris number three through ten were spoken by Moshe. Now, how is it possible that the Jewish people heard it? So there's a voice assist that Hashem helped. Moshe Daber, Hashem answered him Bekol, meaning Hashem made it that Moshe's voice became projected out so that it could compete with the noise of the shofar. It could be heard over the 12 mil, this huge, huge area, and the entire nation heard Moshe Rabbeinu's voice. But it wasn't Hashem's voice. It was Moshe Rabbeinu's voice, and it wasn't even like we have a loudspeaker because a loudspeaker isn't the voice of the person. It's electronically simulated voice, but it's not actually the voice of the person. Here, it was Moshe Rabbeinu's voice. Hashem added the ability for it to travel, added the ability for it to, to, to head out, and the entire nation heard Moshe Rabbeinu's, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu's voice heading out to them, and they heard the dibbers from, from Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, what's very interesting to note also is the Medrash tells us that part of the nace of Harsinai was the absolute silence at the time. It explains the Medrash, Sipul Atzavach, no bird made a tweet, no animals made a sound, Ha'olam Shosek Umachrish, this world was silence. Yatza Kol Hashem, and the word, the voice of Hashem came out, Anoch Hashem Lekecha. It was complete, absolute, utter silence. Each deeper that Hashem initially spoke was broken into 70 Lashonos. It split into 70 Lashonos and it spread out to the world. Each deeper, when Hashem spoke it, the entire world was filled with besamim, with smells, the beautiful fragrances. And this was the single greatest moment in the creation of man. And this was the moment when the Jews were zochet to see that which can't be. And Hashem came on our Sinai, El Roshahar, to the tip, to the top of the mountain. And Hashem called to Moshe, the Roshahar, Vayal Moshe. And this is a very interesting Pasuk over here, because keep in mind that the Pesukim are clearly out of order. Now we know the famous rule, and Rashi explains it often, there's no earlier and later part of the Torah. The Torah is often out of order, meaning if we're told that Moshe spoke and Hashem boosted his voice, but now we're being told Moshe Benin didn't speak yet, meaning we didn't even hear Aserah's Dibras. So clearly this Pasuk is somewhat what we'd say out of order. But in any case, the Pasuk says that Hashem came down to our Sinai and Hashem called to Moshe, Vayal Moshe. Now the Pasuk here says, Vayeret Hashem al Sinai. Hashem came down on Har Sinai. And it's very worthy of stopping here for a moment and making an observation that the Rishonim explain often to us. And that is, whenever we refer to Hashem, and ever, whenever we speak about Hashem, we have to recognize that we're sort of out of our league, and we're out of our frame of reference. Meaning Hashem did not come down on Har Sinai. Hashem wasn't up in Shemayim and then came down to Har Sinai. Hashem is mole kola olam kula. Hashem fills every particle of physicality. It's not that Hashem came down. If you'd like to understand what this Pasuk is saying, let's look at an earlier Pasuk in Bracious. The Pasuk says, Ve'yira elav Hashem be'eloni mamre. Hashem appeared to Avram Avinu in Eloni mamre. Right? This is when the 
Hashem is coming to Mavakechol, and Hashem is telling, going to visit Avram. But the Pesach says, Vayera, Hashem appeared to Avram. Now, normally when you read that Pesach, you assume Hashem wasn't there. Magically, Hashem appears like a, an apparition. Suddenly, Hashem appears. The Targum says, it's not at all what happened. Vizgale Hashem. Hashem revealed Himself to Avram. Meaning, Hashem fills every particle of physicality. If you want to know where Hashem is, all you have to do is find anything physical, and you have to know that Hashem is there, because there can be nothing in the physical world that's not sustained by Hashem constantly. So anything that exists <coughs> means that Hashem is there. So <coughs> Hashem didn't appear to Avram. Hashem didn't like come down from Shemayim and suddenly, I'm here. Quite the opposite is Gali. Hashem revealed Himself, meaning Hashem was there all the time. But we human beings are blind, and <coughs> we can see just what we're allowed to see, and normally a person is not able to experience Hashem on this level. When it says, Hashem, Hashem didn't come down, but it means that Hashem revealed Himself to a level that now the Jewish nation were able to see, and now they were able to experience it, and they were overwhelmed, obviously, by this experience. That's why it was Yotz and Hashem, because of the tremendous desire to become close to Hashem. Hashem Moshe. At this point, Hashem says to Moshe, Go down, warn the people. Lest they come close to Hashem, Liros to see, and many will fall from them. Basically, Hashem is telling Moshe, warn the people. Warn the people not to go beyond where they're allowed. We made that trum. Warn them not to go beyond where they're allowed because many will fall from them. Now, Rashi explains what does it mean, many, nafal menorav, kol mashiyipomehem. Any that fall from them, even if it's one, is to me it's considered like many. Meaning, it, of course, it wasn't going to be many people that would die. After all, Hashem warned them, number one, you're going to die. Number two, it's forbidden. But lest a rav, lest a, a huge amount will fall from them. Why? Because to me, even one of them is considered a huge, huge amount. And it's an interesting lesson to learn from this Rashi. You see... We all know that we're bonim atem l'shem l'keichem. We know that we're children to Hashem. But if you think about that concept, it should really be a bit difficult. You see, let's imagine I have a son. I have an only son, one son. So it could be very obvious, it could be apparent that I love my son. I one son, my love, oh, my only, I love my son. Let's say I had two, two sons. You could also see me loving two sons. Let's say I had ten sons. I could even love ten sons. But let's assume my name is Shlomo Melech. And let's assume I had a thousand wives. And each wife had a son. So now, now I have a 1,000 sons. Can I possibly know the names even of my thousand sons? And let's make it better. Each of my wives has 10 sons. So I have 10,000 sons. Is it possible for me to love these 10,000 sons? I don't know them. I don't understand. Like, it's, it's impossible. And I believe if you think about it, one of the problems that we potentially may have is how could Hashem possibly love me? Listen, I am one of seven billion occupants of the planet. How important am I? I am but one of a horde, one of a huge throng. I'm, and even if you tell me the Jewish nation is special, I get it. But at the end of the day, there are 600,000 at Harsina, I mean, 3 million people in our day, let's say 15 million Jews. What? How is it possible that Hashem actually cares about me as a distinct individual? And the answer is, it's true. It would be impossible for Hashem to love me as a distinct human being if Hashem were like me. 
You see, I can love one person. Maybe I can know 10 people, maybe 100 people, but I am a mortal human being, flesh and blood, very, very limited. And one of the great difficulties in relating to Hashem in a serious way is that we project human tendencies onto Hashem. Hashem is not human, and Hashem has total, complete cognition of every human being at the same moment, at the same time. Hashem is completely in my life all day, every day, at the same time, he's completely in your life, and in that one's life, and that one's life, and Hashem is right there, and whatever <clears throat> Hashem's relationship to me is me alone, despite the fact that there are others. And what Rashi is telling us here is that Hashem says, if one Jew were to die to me, it's a, it's a huge amount. <clears throat> Let the Jewish nation know that not just they as a people are precious, but each one of them is precious to me, because again, Hashem is not limited by our limitations, and Hashem loves every individual uniquely, totally, and completely, and in fact, Hashem, it would have been a tremendous loss. But it's very interesting, the next Rashi, because the next Rashi explains why is it that Hashem was afraid that even a few individuals, maybe even one, might actually touch the har. After all, Hashem told them they're going to die. And says Rashi as follows, says Rashi, I don't want them to come to their grave, because of their desire to see Hashem, to see, and they'll be buried on the side of the mountain. Says Rashi, the reason why Hashem warned Moshe, tell the Jewish nation, tell them again, is because Hashem was afraid that they would have a taiva, a desire, a deep lust, desire to see Hashem, and because of that, they would go to their death. Meaning, yes, they knew that it was most humus, that they would die. Yes, they knew they'd be slaughtered on the spot, it'd be over. But they would, despite that, still go. Why? Because of a tremendous desire to see Hashem. Now, let's understand what Rashi is sharing with us. Number one, we know that there's something called taiva in the world. Taiva is the, a desire, a deep hunger, an appetite, a, a lust. And we even know that there's, there are lusts for things that are powerful. But who ever heard of a taiva lyrus Hashem, a, taiva, a deep hunger to see Hashem so much that it's going to pull me, it's going to pull me. We don't see it in our lives. And number two, even if a person has a strong taiva, let's imagine I love money. I love money. Money, money, that's all I care. Oh, money, wow. And let's even imagine I go to Fort Knox. Oh, my goodness, bars and bars of gold. I love money. I need money. I have to have it. Nevertheless, I guarantee that I would not try to take some of those bars home. Why? Because the armed guards holding the M16 rifles are a pretty clear <coughs> result and lets me know exactly what's going to happen if I try to take those bars of gold home. Meaning to say, I know I'll be shot dead. I could have all the time in the world. I could love money, hunger for money, but I'm not going to reach for the bars of gold in front of the guard's nose because they're going to kill me. So I'm not going to do it. Maybe I'll sneak in at night, maybe if no one's seeing, whatever, but certainly not in front of them. So here's the problem with this Rashi. <coughs> the Jewish nation are gathered in Har Sinai. They're almost at the level of total, complete Nevius now. They recognize that which Hashem says is truthful and will come about. And Hashem told them they're going to die. So they knew, if we touch the higher, we're dead. It wasn't like a suffix, it wasn't a question. Nevertheless, despite their knowing it totally and completely, they might have been pulled because of the taiva. How could a taiva be so strong that you'll go to your death? And I believe, believe that the answer to this Rashi is understanding what the Jewish nation experienced at that moment. 
As we've discussed many times, there is a part of me in Hashem that's pure and holy. That part of me only wants to do what's good, what's right, what's proper. That part of me deeply craves for a connection to Hashem. And that part of me understands the glory of Hashem. And that part of me has a taiva lirosis Hashem, has a desire, a deep hunger to see Hashem. Now the problem that is that I, who am speaking to you right now, am put inside this body, and this body is heavy, and it's like layers and layers and layers. And again, it's much like a radio that you put inside that deep bunker of concrete 20 feet down, so it can't hear the radio waves. Because my neshama is put in this body, layers and layers of physicality, I can't experience that which I normally would. But this moment in time was very different. There was this galos ha Hashem showed himself, Hashem revealed himself to the human people as much as a person can possibly perceive Hashem. And as a result, the Neshama was being pulled out totally and completely. Their body was almost not blocking them. They reached a level where their body was almost not effective. And in that state, there's a real danger. In that state, the, the Jewish Neshama wants to cling to Hashem, wants to pull to Hashem. There's a taiva of Hashem, a desire to see Hashem. And that desire is so powerful that even though they might know that they'll die, it wouldn't stop them. They might go forward anyway. Why? Because that's how powerful that taiva is. And this is highly illustrative because, again, even though we now occupy a body, and the body blocks me and covers me up and makes it difficult, understanding that within me is that neshama, and that neshama is naturally drawn to Hashem, is one of the keys to understanding of Otis Hashem. Ms. Hashem explains to us in the first parak that one of the focal points of our entire existence should be lishbar to destroy all of the barriers that interrupt between me and Hashem meaning naturally I'm pulled to Hashem, naturally I'm drawn to Hashem. The problem is these barriers, these physicality, materialism, all of the various things that prevent me. But by focusing on destroying those mechitzas, destroying those barriers, I go to my natural state. What's my natural state? To cling to Hashem, to be close to Hashem. That's the state of my heart. That's the state of my being. That's the state that I wish to be in. The problem is these interruptions, these mechitzas, but all of the mitzvahs and all of my avodah is focused on destroying them so that I can go back to my natural state. Next passage says, And also the koanim, Hashem says, warn the koanim as well, that are closer to Hashem, and their mokodesh, warn them as well, lest they too die. Rashi explains, the koanim were more holy, they're more mazuman, right? They're more prepared, they're a little bit ahead, so maybe they think that they'll be allowed to go forward and they'd be more, more tempted, warn the Kohanim as well. Now, obviously, one of the problems with this Pesach is that there are no Kohanim, right? Meaning to say, the entire concept of, of Kahuna was only after the Chet of the Eagle. But Rashi explains to us, the Kohanim refers to here the Bechoroth, meaning the firstborn male were the Kohanim. They were the ones who were supposed to serve in the Mishkan. They were the ones who were supposed to be the representatives of Hashem. In the Chet Egel, they lost their privilege, and only Shevet Levi kept it, and actually the Kohanim became the, the Kohanim. But Hashem saying, <clears throat> tell the Bechoros they're more holy, it's true, but they too can't go further. <speaking in Hebrew> the nation can't go to Har Sinai. They know they can't do it. <speaking in Hebrew> because you already warned us, saying, <speaking in Hebrew> place a trum, uh, place a, uh, a boundary around the around the Har. Rashi explains that Moshe is saying to Hashem, what do I have to warn them? We warned them already. 
I already told him, <clears throat> most you must suckle, you suckle. I already told him they're going to die. We already warned them. Hashem, Hashem says to Moshe, Lech raid, go down. Valisa atav imach, you and Aaron should come up. Vakonim va'am Hashem, and the Kohanim and the nation shouldn't come up to Hashem. Penyifrod's bum, lest they die. Rashi explains, Hashem is telling Moshe that you warn them again because you warn a person ahead of time. You warn a person b'shas ma'isa. Apparently there was such a issue. Apparently there was such a problem. And in fact, Moshe went down, warned the people. Then Moshe went back up and he began telling the actual Aser Sedibros, the first two spoken by Hashem and the rest spoken by the rest spoken by Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, I want to end this section with one very, very key observation. You see, we spent some time discussing this concept of a desire to see Hashem and that desire being such that the Jewish nation might be pulled even though they know they would die. But if you look in the Sforno, in the very first, first warning, the Sforno says a line that's absolutely astonishing. The Pesach said, meaning Hashem said to Moshe, tell the Jewish nation, whoever touches the har will die. Lest they go up and be terrible tragedy, people will die. It goes on the Sforno to say, and therefore what? V'yarvu simcha sakel, and it'll spoil the joy of Hashem. B'tamam esamokam b'thigrehem, when they defile the place with their corpses. Meaning to say, Hashem is telling Moshe, tell the Jewish nation, they shouldn't touch the mountain. Why not? Because they touch the mountain, they're going to die. And if they die, they're going to spoil Hashem's joy, because their dead bodies are going to defile the, the mountain, and therefore they shouldn't do it because that's going to spoil Hashem's simcha. Now, number one, it sounds highly cynical. I Meaning Hashem saying, don't touch the har because you're going to die. And, and so what? Well, it'll spoil my simcha. <laughs> my, my joy uh, is, isn't going to be there. Um, it sounds a little cynical. But even if you tell me that that's accurate, it, it doesn't sound like a very effective way to keep people away. Meaning there's some desire that the Jewish nation have to come too close. Hashem said, well, don't do it because you're going to stare my simcha. You're going to make me, I, I won't have the same joy. And that, meaning death isn't going to stop them, but the fact that they're going to stare Hashem's simcha, that somehow, you know, mitigate the joy a little bit, that, that, that's going to stop them. So what does this Sferno explain to? And as a matter of fact, it's almost like I, I give you a, a marshal, the, the best marshal I could think to define what the problem with this Sferno is. Imagine there's a slumlord. Imagine New York City and some really, really bad neighborhood, and you see blocks and blocks of these horrible slums in disarray and totally not cared for, and you know that this is the kind of buildings that are lice-infested and rats, etc. Okay, and then you see the landlord. The landlord's some rich guy who don't care about nothing, don't care certainly not about his tenants, and all of a sudden you see that he's got an entire electric crew men, huge, huge electric crews, crews putting in new electric into the building. And you say to me, Bob, what's the deal? You started uh, turning soft on me? You start caring about the tenants, about their, about their comfort? And he says, me care about the tenants? We couldn't care less. Listen, the problem is if they're loose sockets, if they're bulbs hanging, a tenant could kill himself. If he kills himself, I'm not collecting rent that month. I got to clean up the apartment. It's worth it for me. I did the math. It's worth it for me to put in the tens of thousands of dollars in electric because I keep that many more tenants in that much longer. Now, that would be a pretty 
horrific example of self-centered and nasty sort of attitude. But isn't that what the Pusik's saying? It's almost like Hashem saying, I don't care about the class, but I care because my simcha will be, will be, uh, will be shared. So the question is, what does this Sforna mean? And I believe this Sforna is sharing with us a phenomenal, phenomenal concept. And that is, again, the Jewish nation reached a level on Har Sinai where they so clearly saw Hashem and so clearly had a desire to be close to Hashem that they might have gone to their death. And if it could be Hashem had a problem, how do I stop them? How do I stop them? Meaning, we put the boundary, but at the end of the day, human being has free will. So Hashem, if it could be dug deep into his toolkit to find the one thing that's going to stop them, explain to them that it's going to stare my simcha. Meaning to say, they should know and understand that it's going to hurt me. And the Jewish nation were on a level there where they so clearly saw Hashem and so clearly recognized Hashem and therefore so clearly loved Hashem that that might have stopped them beyond their own physical death. Meaning, they would have gone to their death. That wouldn't have stopped them. Oh, but I love Hashem so I can't, I can't cause Hashem a, a lack of joy. Like I, I can't do it. And I believe this throne is sharing with us a profound insight. Number one, that it would have shared Hashem Simcha. Meaning, as much as for the Jewish people, this was a time of joy and tremendous happiness, it was the same for Hashem. Meaning, in the same way we want to grow, and the same way we experience joy, whatever we experience, Hashem experiences as well. It explains the Chavos Lavavos, one of the basics of our Bitochen system is the knowledge that Hashem loves me more than I love me. As much as I want my self-interest, as much as I want what's good for me, more than I love me, Hashem loves me. And as much as this was for the Jewish nation a time of tremendous simcha, tremendous joy, it was for Hashem a more of a time of joy. Why? Because if it could be Hashem is the mative, the giver, and all Hashem wants to do is to benefit others, to help others. And this was the moment when the Jewish nation were getting it. It was a revelation. It was a moment of coming close. This was the chuppah. And because the Jewish people were growing and accomplishing and reaching that stellar height, if it could be Hashem was it. And as happiest, if we could use such an expression, because Hashem realized that they were growing, they were accomplishing, and Hashem was acting as the ultimate benefiter, and if it was a tremendous simcha to Hashem, and in fact, had even one Jew died, it would have on some level marred Hashem's simcha. So number one, just the idea and understanding that Hashem is happy in our happiness, Hashem is happy in our growth, is a huge concept. But the second concept is the almost automatic Connection between Yiras Hashem and Avas Hashem. You see, if I were ever to experience Hashem in a very real way, obviously I'd be awed. I'd be filled with trepidation. I mean, if if I stand at the base of a mountain, if I stand at the Grand Canyon, if I try to scream over an ocean, I'm I'm awed by the the strength, the majesty. Multiply that 10,000, 10,000 times if I could ever experience Hashem, the creator of the heavens and the earth, in his perfection, I'd be so filled with awe. I, I, needless to say, I wouldn't be able to speak, but way, way beyond that. But at the very same moment, I'd be filled with a tremendous avas Hashem. Why? Because Hashem is perfect, and Hashem is beautiful, and Hashem is everything perfect and beautiful in the world. You ever hear a beautiful piece of music and it just brings tears to your eyes? You see a beautiful act of chesed, or you see a beautiful, and it just your heart wells up with an emotion. If a Jew could experience Hashem on that level, 
if it could be the beauty, the majesty of Hashem, would, I'd be so overcome with that emotion, the emotion would be love, ava, desire to be close, because that's what's pre-programmed into my neshama. And that ava, Hashem, is so powerful that it would be more powerful than self-preservation. <clears throat> Meaning Hashem says to Moshe, tell the Jewish people that if they touch the hara, they'll die. I know that may not stop them, but this will stop them. It'll share my simple and make me unhappy. Oh, that, that was, why would that stop them? Because when a Jew experiences Hashem to that level, there's that sense of awe and sense of trepidation, seeing the majesty of Hashem, but that instantly causes me such a love and all that I want to do is do for my Creator what I could, serve my Creator, make my Creator happy. Oh, if this is going to make him unhappy, I'm not doing it. My own life, that wouldn't stop me. <clears throat> but if it stares Hashem Simcha, that would. And I believe this sort of is eye-opening in terms of all of our avodas Hashem. Number one, to understand that instinctively, intuitively, I'm drawn to Hashem. I have to stop the noise and the static of the material world I live in, but intuitively, instinctively, my natural state is be, to be drawn to Hashem. <clears throat> the more I experience Hashem, not only do I obviously gain appreciation and awe, but instinctively I gain a tremendous amount of love. I also need to understand that as much as I love me, as much as I want my good, Hashem wants my good even more. Hashem loves us more than anything we could ever imagine, envision, explains Chavos of Chavos, take a human being the most kindly, loving, giving person in the world, take that love, multiply it by 10,000, 10,000 times, you don't begin to have an inkling of the love that Hashem has for every one of His creations. So what this surah is showing us is, number one, a profound level of avas Hashem that comes naturally when I appreciate Hashem. And number two, it shows us the extreme love that Hashem has for the Jewish nation, that in fact it would have stared on some level, would have stopped Hashem simcha, and Hashem would not have enjoyed that moment as much. It would have been a tremendous undoing of the joy to Hashem, because Hashem wants our benefit, Hashem wants us to grow, Hashem wants the ultimate good for every one of His creations. You've been listening to At the Foot of Har Sinai. This is a Schmooze production. You can access the Schmooze at www.theshmuz.com or by going to the Schmooze app for Android or iPhone or on Kola Lashon at 718-906-6400 extension 141 or by calling 866 613 8672 theschmooze.com